0: I'm Gary Naugh. Another day, a lot more information, always original, every single day. And we start with a University of Cincinnati academic health center study on strawberries. Now, if you remember last week, I talked about strawberries helping the body. Well, this is a brand new study, and it shows that it improves cognition and mood, and especially if you're overweight, and especially if you're middle-aged. Well, most Americans, unfortunately, are overweight. Now, there's also about 65% of Americans are obese, and then also morbidly obese. Now, just something you should understand. There is no such thing as being overweight and healthy. Yes, absolutely, we should not shame anyone. We should be compassionate. We should offer insights if they ask. There's plenty of information in this country to help a person lose weight in a healthy manner. But unfortunately, most people don't want to lose weight. They've gotten to a place in their life where they simply adapt or maladapt their condition. As a result, they end up dying sooner. They end up in a lot of pain, or neuropathy pain. They're the ones who have the most amputations of their toes and feet. They end up with all forms of heart problems and stroke and cancers. Well, that's not a good trade-off. So I believe that if given the right motivation, a sense of self and purpose, then people will make an effort to lose weight and keep it off in a healthy way. Strawberries can help with that because it alters our mood. And this new study published in the Preview Journal of Nutrients shows daily consumption of one cup, that's one serving, of strawberries for 12 weeks reduced Interference in memory and depression symptoms among middle-aged, overweight adults. And they also had mild cognitive decline. Now, mind you, we've lost a total of five years, five years of our aging in the last three and a half years. And no small measure because of COVID, because of people being isolated, people being told stay home and uh, don't go outside, and all the gyms were closed. Here's the irony. The gyms were all closed in America, but liquor stores stayed open. Isn't that odd? And small restaurants and small health stores closed, but the big box stores stayed open. It's just a series of contradictions. But in any case, when a person's at home, when they fear going out, when they fear being around people, they're tending to eat everything coming in. So you order in. So what do you order? More often than not, junk food. And then, are you exercising? In most cases, no. So that's one of the reasons that we got overweight and depressed. And that caused a lot of suicides, caused a lot of premature death. So the average dropped five years. To give you an idea how serious that is, that's as bad as it was in 1965. So from 65 till now, we've lost those extra years of life. So now middle age, you're 36 years old. You're middle age. All right? And that's the middle age when I was growing up as a kid. So that means that by middle age, you're no longer athletic if you're the average person. You're very sedentary. You're very stressed. You have a lot of money. The average income, average income in America, when you take the most income and the least income, we've got a lot of least income. Remember, we've got 36.5 million Americans living under the poverty level. It's $39,000 a year gross income. Well, a family can't survive on that. So, they're stressed. Stress causes cortisol to go up. That's bad. Because then you got inflammation. Inflammation in the brain, the heart, all over your body. That inflammation causes destruction of your DNA. The DNA being destroyed then shortens your lifespan. It's that simple. So, have strawberries. One cup a day. This was a double-blind, randomized, controlled trial, and it worked. And they used strawberry powder, but you could use strawberries. Uh, You could juice the strawberries. Anyhow, get them into your body. It'll make a difference. Our next study comes from the University of Sydney, which, of course, is in Australia. Now, there's a vitamin that is only now begin beginning to become popular. It is vitamin B3. Now, historically, that would have been niacin. But today, it is called NAD+. Now, I won't get into why it's so important in the aging process, but it is. It helps slow down the aging process. And we should take it every day. However, there's something else it does. It reduces non-melanoma skin cancer reoccurrence. That's good. This was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and this was a randomized trial and which found a protective effect of supplementing a form of vitamin B3 against the risk of non-melanoma skin cancer in high-risk patients. And this was part of the oral nicotinamide to reduce uh, cancer. And uh, so they had the people in it, and they took 500 milligrams a day, and at the end of one year, the incidence of new non-melanomic skin cancers was 23% lower among those who received the vitamin B3. All right, so just one more thing it does. does a lot of good. It would absolutely be in my top five nutrients to take to slow down the aging process and rejuvenate the cells. The University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center has a study that looked at, looked at the ties between anxiety and gut bacteria. Yes, there is a relationship. The interreaction among microorganisms within the human gut may be associated with an increased anxiety level in people with depression. That's what they found. They used advanced bioinformatics tools like 160, 16S uh, RNA gene sequencing. Using advanced bioinformatics tools like 16S RNA gene sequencing, researchers analyzed stool samples from 178 patients with a current or past diagnosis of depression who are part of an ongoing Texas Resilience Against Depression study. This was published in Translational Psychiatry and it revealed three networks of gut microbiome communities, meaning the good bacteria in your gut, three different types, one of which was correlated with anxiety. And while the early findings raised the possibility that gut bacteria could affect anxiety levels, they're doing more research on this. But in lay language, it simply means this. If you want to have good bacteria, eat clean, healthy, organic food, ideally a plant-based diet and have prebiotic and probiotic foods, like beet juice, that's good, sauerkraut is great, tempeh, miso, tofu, all these are good. Non-dairy yogurts that have the bacteria in it. So, you build up colonies of good bacteria. The more of these healthy colonies into the hundreds of billions of bacteria in your gut, it stimulates a healthy immune system, and the healthy immune system helps protect you from every kind of disease. So, better to have a healthy immune system if you're confronted with a, some kind of pathogen than a sick immune system. It's that simple. And the All India Institute of Medical Sciences found for lep- epilepsy, yoga may be good for your mind. For people with epilepsy, doing yoga may help reduce feelings of stigma about the disease, along with reducing seizure frequency and anxiety. This was published in the online Journal of Neurology, the Medical Journal of the American Academy of Neurology. Quote, People with epilepsy often face stigma that can cause them to feel different than others due to their own health conditions, and that can have a significant impact on their quality of life. Uh, The stigma can affect a person's life in many ways, including treatment, emergency department visits, and poor mental health. Our studies showed that doing yoga can alleviate the burden of epilepsy and improve overall quality of life and reduce the, the epileptic seizures. So, good. One more reason to do yoga. A lot of other good reasons. Stretching, breathing, calming down. All that's good and the first people's hospital in Linhai, China, the more magnesium that you take in to your body's needs, the lower your risk of death following a stroke. And people who consumed a higher amount of magnesium had a reduced risk of dying from any cause during a medium 5.3 years following a stroke, compared to those who didn't take enough magnesium. Magnesium deficiency is really serious. It increases the risk of a wide range of diseases, including hypertension, diabetes, metabolic syndrome, coronary heart disease, and stroke. And uh, also, if you're deficient in magnesium, you run a risk of increasing the risk of death. It's that simple. Now, I always suggest to have a little packet, your emergency, stroke, and heart attack packet at home. And just carry it with you. You go out for a workout, carry it with you. And have a little printed, little piece of paper that you can fold up and put with it. And it says, if I should have a stroke or heart attack, please see that these go into my body immediately. And that can save your life. For example, cayenne, two cayenne capsules at about 42,000 heat units that can thin the blood immediately and prevent clots or stop additional clots. Magnesium at 1500 milligrams. Magnesium citrate. Coenzyme Q10 at 1000 milligrams. L-carnitine at 1000 milligrams. And uh, vitamin C and quercetin at 1000 milligrams. That would be my emergency thin the blood, help stop the spread of the stroke, and by the way, hyperbaric oxygen therapy is the first thing you should do, Uh, because if we put people into hyperbaric, that can stop the spread of the uh, destruction from the stroke in the brain. Very important. Just something to share with you that could save your life. And our final study comes from Rockefeller University, There's a nutrient that we don't take, and we should. It's called glutathione. G-L-U-T-A-T-H-I-O-N-E. What it is to do, among other things, is your most important liver nutrient. It's an antioxidant. But this study from Rockefeller University shows it keeps the mitochondria healthy. The mitochondria, of course, are your energy factories in the body. Every cell has them. Just imagine this according to the university, Let's just say a delivery person leaves a package on your front step without pinging you. You likely won't know it's there. A hungry cell waiting for refuel is in a similar position. It has to be alerted to the presence of nutrients outside the cell wall by a sensing mechanism so that a transporter protein can bring the nourishment inside the cell. A handful of these nutrient-sensing mechanisms have thus far been Identified having a profound impact on human health. These discoveries have focused on how an entire cell detects nutrients. Did you understand that? Let's just say the cell is used up. You've done a run, you've done a bike ride, you've worked hard. The cell is depleted of energy. All right, it needs energy. But how's it get it? How do you get that energy factor into the cell, like ADP, adenosine triphosphate? Um, well, within every human cell are self-containing membrane-bound organelles, all of which are equal, equally in need of fuel to carry out important functions. Might they then have a nutrient sensors of their own? As described in a new paper published in Science, a group of researchers at the Rockefeller Laboratory of Metabolic Regulation and Genetics had discovered the first such sensor of an organelle, specifically mitochondria, the cell's power center. The sensor is part of a protein that does triple duty. It senses, it regulates, and delivers the antioxidant right into the cell, glutathione, right into the mitochondria interior, where it plays critical roles in tamping down oxidative reactions, meaning oxidative stress, and maintaining appropriate iron levels. I think this is extremely important. After all, glutathione is an antioxidant produced throughout the body that plays many important roles, including it neutralizes unstable oxygen molecules called free radicals, which damage the DNA. And the cells can go into a terrible state if they're not protected. It also helps repair cellular damage and regulates cell proliferation. And its loss is associated with aging, neurodegeneration, and cancer. So... If you've got a nutrient that can get into the cell and help stop that aging process, destructive process, oxidative stress process, that's terrific. And now we know glutathione does exactly that. So, as a respiratory organelle, mitochondria produces energy. But mitochondria can also be the source of a lot of oxidative stress. Remember, I said once that running around the park can cause as much free radicals as smoking cigarettes. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't run around the park. It means you should have antioxidants that trap the free radicals, so you get the benefit of the exercise and of the harm of the oxidative stress. But the average person doesn't run around the park, and the average person does a lot to create oxidative stress. Drinking alcohol, smoking, smoking marijuana, all of these create oxidative stress, which then create free radicals that attack your cells, damage your cells, and prematurely age you. And that ends up implicating cancer, diabetes, metabolic disorders, and heart and lung diseases that it creates. So if glutathione levels aren't precisely maintained in mitochondria, all systems fail. So glutathione actually enters mitochondria by a transporter protein called SLC25A39 that delivers the package. It also appeared to regulate the amount of glutathione. So, isn't that wonderful? Just the magnificent chemistry of the body. And we're learning more and more all the time. And I share it with you. sounds a little complicated, but just get yourself some, ideally, lysosomal glutathione, because the lipid, lysosomal, gets it into the cell easier. Something to share. And that's it on health and nutrition. Remember, Every single day, for those of you who subscribe and pay that small fee for the Gary Nall newsletter, you're getting the finest information, all my extensive information I give, footnotes, articles, original investigative reports. Go to GaryNull.com, sign up. We'll be back in a moment. Please stay with us. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Gary Nall. In this segment, I'm going to set about 20 minutes aside for you to be able to call in and share your thoughts, because I know you're going to have some. I'm going to play two clips. I'm going to start with, and I want to let the people in the studio know, uh, we're going to go with a shorter clip first. It's only a minute, 18 seconds. This woman, I believe, deserves a Nobel Prize in Peace. She's a real activist, and she risks her career in telling the truth. She's a member of the Uh, Irish Parliament, a real firebrand, and then she was selected because of her outspokenness and her willingness and courage to tell the truth. Uh, Her name is Claire Daly, and uh, now she's a member of the European Parliament. But to show you the kind of contempt that the rest of the members of the European Parliament have, there's a shot here where you see her talking first up close, but then it pulls back and there's no one else in the chamber, Out maybe six people. And these are people who want to hear what she has to say. And yet she's the one of the few, maybe 15 people in the entire European Union, Parliament, who are telling us the truth. We're going to go to that clip first, but then the longer clip that's going to go right behind it is Scott Ritter. And I played Scott Ritter on different occasions. Why? Who is Scott Ritter? Why should you care? Because right now, the American media... And members of Congress, almost all members of Congress, are in full support of giving Israel $14 billion, just like most were in full support of giving Ukraine and Zelensky um, over $130 billion, none of which is accounted for. And a huge amount of that has been stolen. And everyone in Ukraine knows it's stolen. I mean, just to give you an example, about six months ago, I told you that the number one group of individuals buying very expensive villas in Monte Carlo were Ukrainians. And the corruption is at every level. In fact, I played you a clip of the bagman for Poroshenko, the president, before Zelensky. And he talked about how for a vote to occur in their parliament, it was about $50,000 per vote on everything. So people became multi-millionaires just by the graft. And no one cared. Because the people behind the scenes uh, are looking to, well, to exploit Ukraine when the fighting finally stops. And it will. But the whole idea that we've been lied to about, well, Ukraine's going to win, and None of that was true. You got 100% lies all the time. Well, now, they're relegated to going into a, on a bus, literally, and taking older people off the bus and taking them right into a boot camp to get them ready to put in the front lines. How do you put a 70-year-old person in a uniform and give them a gun and not expect them just to get killed immediately? And you see them going into a hospital and beating the hell out of people and telling him, you've got to go in. The people say, I don't want to go. Well, you have no choice. Points a gun to the guy's head. Either go into the uh, army, or we're going to blow your head off. So the guy goes. None of this is ever shown. There's not been one honest report on Ukraine. Not one report in this entire conflict. Except for two people. Tucker Carlson invited Colonel McGregor on, and also Scott Ritter. Now, McGregor is an outstanding uh, and a person to look at the total picture and tell you the truth. He's not affiliated with the military industrial complex. Scott Ritter is... Well, but Scott goes a little more. In this case, here's what you should know. Scott Ritter loves Israel and the Israeli public. He lived there. He worked with the highest officials, and I'm assuming, he didn't say, but uh, in their government in the intelligence division and uh, and there might not, that might have been in their spy agency he said well why because it was his job as the inspector for weapons mass destruction leading a team remember there was Blix and him the only two people who stood up to Madeline Albright uh, who was such a bad person and uh, and remember she was the one on 60 minutes said to Leslie Stall, well, 500,000 children are dead because of, of the sanction, and uh, is that worth it? And she's says, yeah, it's worth it. Well, not if it's one of those 500,000 dead children were her children. But anyhow, she, she and Hillary Clinton are like a tag team match in their ideology and their personality, and they very aggressive neocons. In any case, Scott told the truth. There are no weapons of mass destruction. There's no chemical plants. There's no hidden munitions. It's all gone. But do you also remember there was a little clip that came out? If we can find the clip, we'll play it. Dylan, Kyle, the clip, and we played it years ago, was uh, Turner, who was the head of NATO, but also he was a neocon. He's one of the top generals in the Pentagon. And one of his officers came in and said, Sir, you know, we're going to war with Iraq. And he said, Why? Well, I don't know. Well, because it's one of seven countries we're going to go to war with. Mind you, this is, this is at a time that there was no reason to go to war with any of these countries, like Syria and uh, Iraq, etc. Well, we've gone to war with four of those seven countries. So just keep in mind, the neocons had this in their agenda all along, and then created the circumstances that would justify them going there, lying, and setting up false flags. In any case, Scott Ritter was one of the few human beings to stand up to him and say, you're wrong. And he did it publicly. So they excluded him from conferences, they excluded him from public meetings. But while he was in, I don't know if he worked with Mossad or not, but he said he was there to prevent weapons for many of the Middle Eastern countries, including Iraq, going over and hurting Israelis. Right? I just want to give you that as background. And one of his friends in Israel uh, was one of the top officials in the government. So he knew everyone. So you're talking about not a stranger, someone who lived in Israel, worked in Israel, defended the Israeli public, was considered a hero by the Israeli military. Because he knew this is one brave guy. I mean, normally, someone that brave gets taken out. So, that's Background. He also is a Marine, and everything he has predicted about Ukraine and about Israel has been spot-on accurate. He's like the Gerald Solante of uh, these conflicts. He's accurate. So let's listen to what he has to say following the uh, first clip by Claire Daly. And he's going to give you a story, his perception of what has actually happened, and how none of what you've been told in the papers are accurate. But what what is the truth then? And he's going to tell you that Hamas worked for years to attack uh, Israel the way they did, and that doesn't just, does not in any way justify the murderous way that they did this, but they they baited Israel, and they won that. No one's willing to talk about any of this Well, we felt that he should have a form to say what he has to say, and you can agree or disagree with him, all right? Those are the two clips we're going to go to, and then I'm going to open it up for your thoughts. And remember, a lot of what you're going to respond to and filter is based upon your conditioning. Everyone has filters. Different filters for different things in life. We've been epigenetically conditioned to believe some things, reject some things, even if what we reject turns out to be the truth. If you're a Democrat or you're a Republican or you're a hardcore right-wing conservative, if you're a hardcore left-wing liberal, if you're a banker, if you're into money, if you're into uh, corporatizing and privatizing and exploiting, then everything that would challenge that is filtered out. And along with it, empathy, understanding, reconciliation, all that is denied. That's why we get into these stupid conflicts, and that's why ultimately when we get out, we seem to have no sense of irony. Why don't we look back on how we got into Vietnam? Who got us there? Why we stayed there? How many people suffered? Did anyone apologize? Did anything change because of that as far as how we go forward? Completely not. We haven't changed anything in our entire history. We still have this manifest destiny. You know, and they disguise it today, they don't say manifest destiny. And they instead, like a Sean Hennig will say something, that we need someone who wants small government. Well, Sean, then you're giving a trillion and a, a and a half dollars 5 to the military-industrial complex, and most of that is wasted, unneeded, and or exploited as profit. Why don't you cut half that budget out? Oh, no, 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 not a, sm- a huge government when it comes to military-industrial complex. What about all the bailouts of all the major corporations? No, 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 no. We want a huge, gigantic, absolutely over-the-top amount of free money, socialized money, for banks that go broke, and corporations go broke. No, save them. What about the people? Well, so what about the people? Don't they count? Evidently not. I mean, this is the insanity of listening to these people. I'd rather stick a pencil in my ear and scramble my brains than watch any of these idiots because they're all, left and right, they're all so, dim, so diminished in their capacity to understand the root cause of anything, including their own sociopathic or psychopathic tendencies and what they support. That's my thought, thoughts. But I don't hide my thoughts. I put them out there. So we better think before we make a statement. What's our statement coming from? Are we using reason or pure, unbridled, ideological reaction? Are we acting like a member of a cult? The cult of wokeism, the cult of identity politics, the cult of exploitation. What cult do we belong to? Because we're a nation of cultists and tribalists right now in our history. Let's see what you think after you hear Scott Ritter. We'll go to the clips now.
1: Thanks, President. A month has elapsed since the commencement of the unrelenting mass murder of Palestinians in Gaza. It's not a spiral of violence, Frau von der Leyen. It's genocide, openly declared and carried out by the apartheid state of Israel. Starvation, bombing, hospitals, ambulances, journalists, humanitarian routes, 10,000 dead, one in 200 Gazans killed, a Palestinian child slaughtered every 10 minutes. For a month, and Frau von der Leyen's answer to this graveyard for children is to tell Israel to avoid civilians. Be as targeted as you can. Well that displays some neck. You can't even call for it to stop. You can't even call for a ceasefire. Well of course you can't. Because these crimes against humanity are being carried out with your weapons in your name when you stood with Israel a month ago and you said you'd stand with them now and in the days to come. So don't come in here trying to wipe the blood off with belated concern. It's not not just Israel's genocide, it's yours and The Hague isn't good enough for you.
2: Some water. (laughs) Have a drink. Oh, my friend, Uh, this is, this is, I knew this was going to be very uh, emotional live stream here today. Um, We have a question that came up on the screen here. Uh, I just uh, caught it. Most of these we can't bring up or answer most of them during the show. If you do want to send some super chats in there, that will definitely highlight some of the questions that we can bring on to the program. This one was from Kamal. Netanyahu says that Israel will control the Gaza security after the war. What does that mean?
3: Well, first of all, it means that Netanyahu doesn't have a plan. He doesn't know what he's doing. Let's just remember, to set up the answer to that question, we have to go back to October 6th. On October 6th, Benjamin Netanyahu and the rest of the collective Israeli leadership believed that Hamas was an organization dedicated to the continued governance of Gaza, but governance as dictated by Israel, the conditions of governance as dictated by Israel, meaning to control an open-air concentration camp, to be little more than the capos of the Israeli Nazi masters, capo being a term coming from the Nazi concentration camps, a Jewish prisoner who works together with the leadership of the camp to impose rules, regulations, order uh, it amongst the Jewish prisoners who are waiting to be slaughtered. Uh, So Hamas should be in the eyes of the Israelis, their capos over their concentration camp. Um, The Israeli military was asleep. On the same night, October 6th, October 7th, the chief of staff of the Israeli army, together with the heads of the intelligence organizations, uh, were meeting about intelligence reports that were coming in from the guys on the line saying, hey, Hamas is up to something. We've been seeing them training where they're massing, they're moving, they've been doing rehearsals. We think they're coming over the wall. You guys might want to call an alarm, you know, stand to That's a Marine Corps term. I think the Army might use it, but I always fall back on my Marine Corps background. Stand to That's what happens right before the beginning of, you know, uh, uh, the morning twilight. You get all your Marines up facing outwards, waiting for the attack because that's when the enemy comes over. Historically, historically, the enemy attacks at dawn. And, um, So stand to stand to call in the people who are on leave. And it's the biggest religious holiday. Didn't you guys do this 50 years ago? You know, send everybody home on leave on Yom Kippur. Only the Egyptians come across the Suez Canal and the surprise attack. Wow. So they're sitting there debating and they said, yeah, this is politically sensitive. We don't want to do that. So we'll just talk about it in the morning. Well, they did talk about it in the morning because Hamas came over the wire and now these Leaders, These same people who failed the Israeli people, they are responsible for the security of the Israeli people and they failed. Benjamin Netanyahu failed. The entire Netanyahu government failed. These are losers. These are failures. And now they're trying to pretend that somehow they're in charge. So when you're trying to pretend you're in charge, you say really stupid things. Benjamin Netanyahu's statement, rely, uh, you know, talking about Gaza, implies that somehow Israel is in control. Hey, Benjamin, you haven't been in control since the morning of October 7th. Hamas has been dictating the scope scale pace of this operation. They lured you into a trap. I think people need to understand that. The Israeli army going into Gaza, two things about it. One, the Israelis didn't have a plan. They've done an exercise last year and this year, chariots of fire last year, firm hand this year, where they stress test the entire Israeli defense force in terms of what happens if everybody attacks us at once. And you say, well, Scott, so they should be prepared for this, right? No, because the big attack that they were worried about came from Hezbollah out north. That's where the bulk of the Israeli military went up with. The supporting attack was from Iran sending missiles, and so they were ready for that. Uh, Defending the Golan Heights, they were ready for that. The West Bank and Gaza were written off as civil unrest, limited terrorist attacks. Israel has never conceived, never conceived what happened on October 7th, never. And as a result, they're making the plan up. Normally, if you're a professional military organization, you have a cabinet out there where you have a plan for everything. They, they hired people like me you know, to sit there and say, write contingency plans, Ritter. What if, what if, what do we do? And I wrote contingency plans for Iran a lot. Um, They had no plan for this, so they're making it up as it goes along. They mobilized 300,000 guys, and they go, what do we do with them? We don't know. We're going to have to launch a large-scale ground incursion, but what does that mean? Why, if you're going to launch a large-scale ground incursion, would you therefore come in and execute the mowing the grass doctrine, the Dahiwa Principle? Bombing civilian population is collective punishment. A war crime, by the way, but you're dropping buildings, creating a city of rubble. Have you tried to drive a tank through a rubble strewn street? Can't do it, guys. And we learned from history. Ask the, the, the Germans about Stalingrad. What happened when you bombed Stalingrad into rubble and the Soviet soldiers dug in? How hard was it to pull them out? Impossible. Ask the Americans, the British, the Canadians, the Indians, the Poles, about Monte Cassino in 1944, where we blew up a ancient religious uh, site, created rubble in the 6th German Parachute Division, went into the rubble, and held us off for months. Um, the Israelis didn't think this thing through. So, in then you know, I was saying things. We're going to be in charge of security. One... He's in charge of nothing, because he hasn't secured the top. They've taken the easy corridors around, but they haven't secured the rubble. Uh, two, what happens on top ain't where the war is being fought. The war is being fought by Hamas below ground, where they are popping up. Just last night, they destroyed 10 Israeli vehicles, 10 Israeli vehicles by popping up and attacking them with rocket-propelled grenades, 10. I don't know how many Israelis they killed, but this is going to be a death by a 1,000 cuts, for the Israelis they're talking about a war that could last a year now I'm not saying Hamas is going to enjoy this kind of success every night but 365 days a year times ten that's three thousand six hundred and fifty some odd destroyed vehicles add the manpower to that it's unsustainable losses for um, for Israel the other thing is by saying you're going to occupy Gaza the security He's trying to come up with a solution to how you resolve the political issue of Hamas. It's one thing to say that you're going to go in and kill Hamas commanders. They're trying. They're not succeeding right now, but, you know, we're only one month into a war that's going to go on for many months unless uh, rational thinking intervenes. But how do you destroy the idea? How do you destroy the idea? And so what he's saying is we're going to have to occupy. This shows you how stupid the man is, because the idea behind Hamas is born of occupation. The idea behind Hamas is legitimized by occupation. And so this idiot, Benjamin Netanyahu says, we will control Gaza, we will occupy Gaza. Does he not understand that he's playing the Hamas game? Hamas has lured him into this trap. Hamas is winning across the board. There's not one aspect of this fight that Hamas is not winning because everything's going according to the Hamas plan. I don't know if Hamas predicted the millions of people in the streets around the world, but that's a Hamas victory. That's a huge Hamas victory because it's putting a horrendous amount of pressure not on Israel but also on the United States, Israel's number one supporter. Right now, we have political divisions inside the uh, the White House, inside the State Department. There is open revolts, people resigning because they're saying our policy with Israel is unsupportable, unsustainable. Um, And so we are putting pressure on Israel to do that, which they say they will never do, you know, ceasefire. They're going to call it a pause because politically you can't call it what it really is. But a Mm -hmm. ceasefire, to implement a ceasefire is a defeat for Israel, not because it really benefits Hamas. Hamas is ready for a 90-day war. They don't need a ceasefire. But because Israel is committed that they will never have a ceasefire, the moment they agree to a ceasefire, it's a political loss. It begins the process of Israel backing down from its hardline positions until they have to respect reality. And the reality is you ain't going to beat Hamas.
2: Uh, Scott, you know, you called it on this program two months ago. I went back just before I uh, did the live stream today, and I remember you saying I brought up a question. I think it was one of our first live streams, maybe even three months ago. And I asked you, you know, the Israelis, they're using artificial intelligence. And it was you on this very program um, that said, watch, there's going to be a way that they get in there and they can manipulate that AI to fail. And that's exactly what has happened here. The AI failed. This is one of the most uh, talked about military intelligence countries in the world. And they got their ass kicked. (laughs) <laughs> I yep. mean, you said it on this program. Um, I'm going to go over to a Twitter tweet that you put out or an X, the formerly known as Twitter. Um, you um, sent this to Robert Kennedy Jr. You said the tide has turned against Israel. If the trajectory stays on track, the state of Israel and the Israeli people run the risk of losing everything, underlined everything again. I mean, could this be the end of Israel?
3: it could be the end of political zionism um and i would think that would be a good thing if there is a safety net i am not advocating for the termination of the israeli state i am not advocating uh for the violent expression of from the river to the sea a lot of people interpret that as the expulsion of the israeli people but if you know if you believe in the one state solution From the river to the sea means you're going to create a single state where Jews, Muslims, Christians live together as equals. Um, That's why it's pretty difficult for the United States to articulate a single state solution. We continue to buy into a two-state solution. But a two-state solution where you have a separate Jewish state, a separate Arab state, Muslim and Christian living side by side, Um, that's always been the political Zionist plan because They can manipulate that notion as they have successfully done over the years. The Abrams Accord is the most modern manifestation of this manipulation to create conditions, to dictate conditions of Palestinian statehood that are so unrealistic that there will never be a Palestinian state. So this is why a lot of people today are saying we don't want a two-state solution. We're looking for a one-state solution. A one-state solution, however, cannot exist without the strategic defeat, the total defeat of political Zionism. That is, the underlying philosophy that created the Israeli state to begin with, a separate separate Jewish homeland must be terminated, and Israel must be reimagined as a place in the Middle East where people of all faiths can live together, Jewish, Christian, Muslim. This is more difficult to do. One of the reasons why it's difficult to do is we're never allowed to think it. Because the moment you talk about this, the moment you articulate anything that is seen as being anti-Zionist Israel, you're called anti-Semitic. I mean, we see right now American uh, uh, politicians trying to say that if you criticize Zionism, if you speak out against Zionism, you're anti-Semitic. No, not at all. Not at all. You're just anti fascist Israel. I mean, that's the reality, but Congress has been bought and paid for by the pro Israeli American, you know, the pro Israeli lobby here in America. Don't say, Scott, you're anti Semitic. How dare you repeat? That's blood libel. That's another term they always throw out there. That's blood libel. No, it's not. Uh, Ariel Sharon has openly bragged about buying the U.S. Congress. He was a prime minister of Israel. Benjamin Netanyahu, likewise, openly brags about buying the U.S. Congress. Heck, the American-Israeli Public Affairs Committee, this Jewish lobby, that pro-Israeli lobby in Washington, D.C., brags about how they control Congress. Think of it, ladies and gentlemen, at a time when Democrats and Republicans are fighting over every single issue here in the United States. Heck, today's election day, we get to see it played out live and in color. Um, why do, when when APAC opens up its you know annual forum, why do they all flock there? like subservient slaves, and sit there and just effuse praise for Israel. Democrats and Republicans alike. Why? Because guess who writes the campaign checks? Guess who keeps these guys who come there from being primary? That's the kiss of death in the political business, especially for a two-year representative. You come in, you have two years. If you have to prepare for a primary about a year into your office, it means you're not doing a good job, you're not doing your real job, you're fighting, you're spending all your money preparing to be primary, you're not even going up against your principal opponent, you're going to lose the election. And the pro-Israeli lobby plays on this by telling them, not only will we not fund you, but we will fund your opponent in a primary. Congress is bought and paid for, the United States is controlled by... Uh, by Israel. There is no real criticism here in Israel uh, uh, of Israel today in the United States. You're not allowed to be critical. And that's the worst thing you can do to a friend. I used to be two feet in the Israeli camp. I mean, I, I think I, I may have told you that, but I've said that before. You know, I'm not, I'm not one of these guys that have spent my whole life, you know, with a free Palestine, but I didn't wear the kefir around my neck, you know, in symbolic, you know, you know brotherhood with the PLO. Not my style. My style was I was in Israel from 1994 to 1998 working with Israeli intelligence in a very close fashion to resolve the issue of weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. My primary function was disarmament, but the secondary function was to keep those missiles that Iraq had used during the Gulf War, which I fought in, by the way, to attack Israel. I was involved in the campaign to stop them from attacking Israel, to prevent it from happening again. And I worked at the highest levels with the Israeli Intelligence Service uh, to, to, to resolve this issue. I fell in love with Israel. I, this is why this what's happening right now just breaks my heart, breaks my heart, because I loved Israel. We might have been naive about israel i mean i have to be honest my host was very good about opening me up to the complexities of of the situation he lived in a in a village uh, as you go from tel aviv up towards um, jerusalem you come up to what they call the green line that's the 1967 uh boundary the uh, borders and he lived in a uh, in a village and he you know on the israeli side and he pointed over he said see that hill over there i said yeah he goes that's on the other side of the green line "See that village over here with the mosque i said yeah he says that's palestinian village he said Understand that I this is where I have we were in a barbecue by the way, him and his neighbors were having a barbecue. He said, This is where I raised my family. This is where you're a military guy. What does the high ground mean? I said, Well, mortars, snipers, observed fire. He goes, Yeah. So if we go to war against them, we're gonna die. My family's gonna die. They're gonna pay the price. I want peace. We want peace. This was during um Yitzhak Rabin's uh, prime minister, uh, when he was prime minister, Yitzhak Rabin's, the prime minister that's got the Oslo Accords, Oslo One, Oslo Two, He was assassinated by a right-wing Jewish fanatic who was a supporter of Benjamin Netanyahu, assassinated because he was pursuing peace. Um, but that's the Israel I fell in love with. I fell in love with the Israel that when a bomb went off 100 yards from my hotel and there were bodies in the streets, they went out there, they, 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 they picked up the bodies. They swept off the debris, they picked themselves up, wiped off the tears, dusted themselves and went on, not in revenge, not in revenge, saying we have to have peace. This is why we have to have peace. And you know who was blowing up those bombs? Hamas. A terrorist organization back then. But what did Benjamin Netanyahu do? He took Hamas, a terrorist organization, and turned it into a political organization and gave them through elections that Israel funded and supported to divide the Palestinian population, he put them in charge of governance of Gaza. And now Benjamin Netanyahu is saying I guess, what he's really saying is I gotta make up for the mistake I made because I, I, Benjamin Netanyahu, put them in charge in Gaza. I'm the one that made them govern. And let's reflect on that term governance, because you hear a lot of that from the Israelis. Hamas should be in the business of governing. Okay, I'm going to elect all of you right now. Um, you know, mayor of Gaza. You're the mayor of Gaza now. You're in charge of governing all these two million plus people. And wait a minute, you're the mayor of a city under occupation. You want your people to travel freely, but they can't. You want to have a sound economy, but you can't. The Israelis are in control of the economy. Every once in a while, they come in and bomb people. Uh, They they don't let you have an airport. They don't let you have a port. They don't let you live in normal. You're in charge of governance. What would a leader of a population subjected to that do try to change that reality and what happens when you run into a brick wall with the international community you go to the united nations they pass resolution after resolution after resolution after resolution condemning the israeli actions as of war, war crimes as violation of international law but when you take it up to the security council the united states vetoes it so there's no meaningful action and now you see there <laughs> look at all the people supporting you know Palestine and didn't put up the slide. I'm sure there's one out there, uh, or is it the red? Yeah, the red dots are the uh, the, the people who voted against. So this, this happens yeah, all the
2: time. Or, or America something.
3: <laughs> yeah, so this yeah. happens all the time, where the majority of the world supports the Palestinian cause, but the United States leads a handful. And trust me, I was at the United Nations. All those red dots that don't say America or Israel, they're up there because we bribe them, we bully them, we intimidate them, we threaten them, we control them i know this because i watched it happen with similar votes about iraq but my point is that if you're in charge of governing gaza and your people are suffering what are you going to do about it what are you going to do about it 70 years in if you're in charge of governing and your responsibilities to these people you're going to go to war you're going to go to war and that's exactly what hamas did they went to war
0: okay that's scott ritter again he is not advocating for war. He's simply trying to allow his interpretation of why Hamas, that was created by Netanyahu and others, in order to control the uh, Gaza and divide the Palestinian people, because the vast majority of Palestinians do not support uh, Hamas. They supported Arafat. They supported the Palestinian, Palestinian Liberation Army that was out of the country, been defeated by the uh, Israeli army, and, uh, but there was no peace. Even the accords that were signed never were implemented. So, he's trying to give us a historical explanation that no one in the American media, and I mean no one in the American media, not at CNN, not at MSNBC, not on 60 Minutes, talks about where did it all begin? All right? Do they understand? Have they read the Balfour Declaration? Did they know about uh, Lord Mountbatten? and his participation in Churchill and others? They don't. So if you leave all that out of the equation, then it's kind of hard to understand why anyone would commit a crime against humanity. He's merely giving us his perception based upon having been around the world in many conflict zones, and as you heard him say, I saw how they manipulated the truth to get us into Iraq and sustain us in Iraq. Who won in Iraq? Not the Iraqi people. Their, their oil has been exploited by international consortiums. Same thing in Iran, when they overthrew the in 1950, 1953 the democratically elected Mosaddegh for their oil. Who was behind that? Dwight Eisenhower? Yes. And uh, British Petroleum? Yes. British Prime Minister, yes. For what ends? The oil. Gaddafi, the oil, to stop the Golden denier from being used as currency of exchange. I'm really sharing this with you. How would you... What would you suggest to see the conflict end? And to keep a permanent solution. I've given you my solutions. My solution was to have independent, international, peace-giving and uh, uh, agencies... That have nothing to do with our current political uh, community because they're all biased, been captured, to oversee a two-state solution, and then return the West Bank in its entirety to the Palestinians and let them thrive. Because, as a friend of mine said, he's been working with the Israelis and the Catholic Church to exchange icons from the past and then bring in industries so both can flourish. After all, if you allow a community to flourish, and you eliminate poverty, and you eliminate prejudice, and there's no longer walls around you, and there's no longer people going to shoot you if you go too far out in the ocean, that changes the dynamic, because under Turkish rule, and under the Ottoman Empire, for hundreds of years, Christians, and Jews, and Muslims were able to coexist. And uh, so we do not see this as an eternal conflict, as a lot of people would have you believe. 888 874 is our number. 888-874-888, excuse me, 874-888. What, what is that number? Eight, I just said it wrong, I think. 888 <laughs> 874 is the correct number. We're going to say goodbye to our WBA because they're going to the news. We're going to continue. I'd like to hear what you have to say up till the top of the hour. Please give us a call now. We're going to take a break. Be right back. Okay, we don't have any calls. Um, I do want to share this with you. This is according to Dr. Brenda Balletti, Gates, meaning Bill Gates, funded plan to vaccinate 86 million girls against the human papillomavirus. We'll quote... Unleash MASH casualty event, critics say. GAVE, the Vaccine Alliance, which, by the way, Bill Gates founded, funds, is investing more than $600 million to reach its goal of vaccinating 86 million girls in low- and middle-income countries by 2025. The alliance is funded in large part by the Bill Melinda Gates Foundation. All right, well, that's not good. Why? Because... We already know that there's been a huge number of uh, young girls who have had adverse reactions, many life-changing, meaning they're permanently disabled, 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17-year-olds, and many died. The government refused to acknowledge this. Lawsuits commenced, and uh, still, the Gardasil is still a mandated vaccine. That's just, to me, it's insane, because I filmed this, and uh, I filmed the person who, uh, Dr. Harper, who invented the vaccine. I got, (coughs) excuse me, I got all this on film. We should never have a Gardasil vaccine. And knowing Bill Gates, I would guess that for that $600 million that they're investing they're expecting billions of dollars in profit return. That's what he did with COVID. Remember, every person on the planet has to get vaccinated. And then later, well, we, we didn't know all this. Well, you should have. So you put the entire world at risk, but he made a lot of money. Oh, my God. I'd love to be able to debate this clown. In any case, I'm going to end just a little bit early, two minutes early, because I've got a live uh, pre-record I'm going to be doing with one of America's leading scientists, and uh, who was attacked because he was shown to be correct about the dangers of the COVID vaccine. He ended up on the front page of the New York Times being pillared. Well, he's fighting back. So I'm doing a pre-record, which you'll hear next, um, in about two weeks. So we're going to say goodbye now, and we look forward to sharing more on tomorrow's program. Have a nice day, everyone.